You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Braden Coates. I serve here with Connections as well as with Local Missions. Uh, Today we'll be reading out of Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. Um, Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there is one and should be one in the seat in front of you. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar, and Abraham said, Sarah, said to Sarah's wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not yet approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, not, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You've done me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought... There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, your brother... Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you're doing well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway, and happy Palm Sunday to you. As we turn our attention this week to Genesis chapter 20, continue our study through the book of Genesis, we're going to come to a really interesting passage here this morning, as we just read. You know, last week, we came off a very sobering very hard, difficult chapter, chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we looked at the, the reality of sin. We looked at the divine judgment of God and we saw the incredible mercy um, to rescue uh, God's appointed from that judgment. And uh, immediately what's gonna happen next, well, not next week, next week's Easter, but right after Easter, what we're gonna get to is chapter 21, which is one of the most beautiful chapters. It's It's uh, Isaac's birth. It's what we've been waiting 25 years for since chapter 12. 
The promise that God made that through the line of Abraham, this, this, this old man and this old woman is barren, is going to come this miracle child. And so you would think after all that we went through last week, what we're going to see in the week to come uh, this would be just a chapter of worship, a chapter of Abraham falling prostrate on the ground, prostrate on the ground, then in worshiping the Lord and praising his name. And yet we're going to find something really bizarre in this chapter. Um, I don't know about y'all, but growing up, uh, I realized the generations have changed, but I would say 90% of the TV shows I watched were called reruns. They were old episodes that were created before I was even born that somehow were made in real time to me, just on repeat all the time. This is what we're gonna call a repeat episode here in chapter 20. Look what happens here. Verse one, just set some context for you. From there, where is there? It's Mamre. It's where Abraham was the last time we saw him in chapter 19, where he interceded for Sodom, where he, he watched the, the smoke rise from its destruction. From there, just outside the Dead Sea in Israel, Abraham journeys toward the territory of the Negev. The Negev is the southern desert, the Sinai Peninsula of, of Israel. And then he camps between Kadesh and Shur, right in the middle of the Negev. And then he sojourns, continues on to Gerar. So what we're seeing here is Abraham, after the destruction of Sodom, is now moving as far west as you can get away from Sodom. He is going from the Dead Sea all the way to modern-day Gaza Strip, right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a Philistine territory, as far away as you can get from Sodom. And again, we would go, okay, he's running from Sodom. He's going to set up shop in a new land. He's going to worship God. But oh no, verse 2, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. What? Have we seen this before? Oh yeah, we've seen this before. Last time it was chapter 12 with Pharaoh. This time it's a new king in Gerar named Abimelech. And he lies and says, Sarah is not his wife, she's my sister. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sends for her and takes her into his harem. And you go, oh no, haven't we seen this before? You gotta be kidding me. Again, in TV language, this is called a rerun. And it's not the kind of rerun you want to watch right here. Remember what happened in chapter 12. Chapter 12, famine hits. Abraham packs up and moves southwest to Egypt. And he sojourns there. And he encounters the Egyptians and he lies. And he says, Sarah's not my wife, she's my sister. He lies, he's manipulating and then Pharaoh, Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. But before he can even lay a hand on her, God strikes Pharaoh's court with a plague. And that plague prevents him from touching her. And miraculously, God reveals to Pharaoh, this is not a man's sister. This is a man's wife. This is adultery. And he gets terrified, gives Sarah back, and then compensates Abraham and blesses them on their way. The exact same thing happens here 25 years later in chapter 20. Only this time, instead of Pharaoh, it's another king, Abimelech. 
Now, there's a few nuances here that are different, and we want to take some time to walk through those. But after I do that, I want to show you two major reasons why I think this text is here. Not just accidentally wedged between 19 and 21, but purposefully placed right here. Now, one of the first questions that we want to deal with is, why did Abraham feel like he needed to lie again? Why? why? After two, I mean, the last time he did this, he saw it didn't go well. God bailed him out. He realized the error of his way. He goes back up into the land of Canaan and he sets up an altar and he worships God. And he realizes, I've done wrong. I won't do that again. But now 25 years later, he's going to do it again. I'm going to save the bigger answer for later here, but I want, I want to cheat a little bit. Let you look down at the end of this text and you're going to see his excuses for why he lies. He's going to give three excuses to Abimelech, starting there in verse 11. Look at these excuses. Abraham said, well, I did this because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they're going to kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, then I said to her, well, this is the kindness that you're going to have to do for me at every place to which we come, say of me, he's my brother. So we got three excuses here, and these are your classic garden variety excuses. And by garden, I mean Genesis 3. This is the same thing that you see there. Look at his first excuse. You saw that there? There's no fear of God in this place, Abimelech. That's why I had to do it. You are going to kill me if I didn't make up a story. Same thing he did in chapter 12 with Pharaoh. Now, here's the deal. There is a, a reality it's not excusable, but it is explainable. There's a reality in the ancient Near East, when you would go into a hostile area while you're sojourning, it was not uncommon that if that territory was violent, if they found out, they saw a woman, maybe the leader in that area saw a woman that he wanted for himself, found out she was married, they would just kill the husband. Like that makes it any, any better. But they would kill the husband and then take the wife into that man's harem. It's awful as all that is. And the deal is, if they found out you were a sibling instead, they would actually let you live and that leader would begin a bargaining process for what's the price for this woman. It's backwards, jacked up, but that's how it was. And so what Abraham probably thinks in his mind is I'm gonna pretend to be siblings here and if anybody in any foreign territory tries to take my wife, they're not gonna kill me. I'll get to live and then we'll bargain and I can drive that price up so high that no man will ever be able to afford her. Problem is he didn't count on, he's gonna run into a Pharaoh and he's gonna run into an Abimelech. Abimelech is actually not a name, it's a title means uh, my father is king. You're going to see a couple different Abimelechs in scripture. It's a title that was given like Pharaoh. He didn't count on running into a sovereign king who cannot be bartered with, who will just take what he wants. But nonetheless, he says, this is why I did it. Like you forced me to do this, Abimelech. And then second, notice the second excuse. Technically, if we're going to get off on technicalities here, she actually is my sister. And whoa, do we have an unveiling here that Sarah is actually 
his sister, his half-sister. It's his dad had a daughter with another woman. Now, I ain't got time to get into the backstory of what was going on in Ur, and, but you can see some back, backward stuff going on right here. But nonetheless, the point is, he's lying. Yes, technically, that is his half-sister, but that's not why he was saying that. He knew good and well what he was doing. He's white lying here, and it's still a lie in the intention of his heart. But third, the excuse is, well, God calls me to be a wanderer. I was doing just fine in Ur, and God set up this life for me, and if this is the life for me, then I'm gonna have to work some things out. I was forced to have to do this in these territories. And I want you to note at the end of verse 13, we actually find out this has been Abraham's MO all along. This was his plan since Ur. Everywhere we go, I'm gonna concoct the story that we're siblings. And Sarah, I need you to go along with me. So what a good wife, you better go along with me. And so he concocts the plan, coerces her to do this thing. And so everywhere they go, She's my sister, he's my brother. And here's the deal. All three of these are simply excuses and all of them are your classic garden variety blame shifting. He plays the victim in each one of these. Notice in the first excuse, it's your fault, Abimelech. Second excuse, it's your fault, Sarah. Third excuse, it's God's fault. He's the one who did this. It's the same thing that we saw in the garden with Adam and Eve. Anybody's to blame except for Abraham himself. And the fact that he could trust God's provision in so many other crazy circumstances. But this one thing is this kryptonite. This one area is the area he just can't relinquish control of. And as soon as he does, he grabs it back to try to manipulate it and and coerce the will of God somehow. He felt this was his only legitimate option. Can any of y'all relate to that? Or am I the only one here? Can you relate to the fact that we can trust God in a lot of areas? There are certain areas of your life God's just given you great faith in and you trust him. And then there's that one area that you just can't trust him in. It's too painful. It's too hard. Um, just can't sit and wait in patience. And so as soon as you want to give it up, you you take it back. And you've seen God do all these crazy things. He's proved himself trustworthy over and over and over again. But when this one area shows up, you can't trust God anymore. And you got to take it back. And it goes on repeat. It gets put into syndication in your life. It's just a repeat episode, a rerun episode over and over again of God continually trying to prove to you, you don't have to manipulate this. I got it. Just trust me. We all do it. I do it. Now, here's the deal. God is not going to let Abraham get away with this. And there's a couple of reasons why he won't that I think we're meant to see. Number one, he's God's child. He's God's child. And as God's child, he is more concerned with Abraham's future maturity, future holiness, future dependency than he is with Abraham's present comfort or present happiness. He will not allow Abraham to persist in such a low view of sin that Abraham can somehow keep doing this and think it's okay, that God is okay with it. Same with you and I. 
God loves us so much as his children, he's not going to let us persist in repeat episodes over and over for too long without thinking that somehow, somehow thinking that we can get away with this or this is just okay. God loves us so much as his children that he will allow our sin to be exposed in his due time so that we might be humbled, we might repent, we might turn to his mercy, and we might then share after returning to him in his holiness and trust. We see the same thing, the New Testament tells us this. Author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, says this is how God as Father works with us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why? God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, and by the way, in which all of us have participated in, well, if you don't, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them, maybe not in the moment, but in time. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as they thought seemed best to them. But he, that is God, he disciplines for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. God loves us too much to just let us go and think that this sin is okay. He is gonna step in and discipline us because that's what good fathers do. And he is totally okay. And in fact, is committed to seeing our plans ruined if it means that because of it and through it, we might trust him more and be sanctified and grow into his holiness and maturity. Now, For now, what we need to see here is that this compromise of Abraham is yet another threat to the promise of God that he had in chapter 12. God promised, I'm gonna bring about a miracle child. You're gonna have nothing to do with it. Nothing's gonna thwart it. And all we've seen since chapter 12 is threat after threat after threat that would seek to undo the promise that God made to Abraham, but God will not allow it. And that's the second reason. Not only are you his beloved child, you are a covenant child. He is sovereignly committed to ensuring that his covenant promise is going to be fulfilled. Notice how in verses three and following. This is how God intervenes to ensure his promise is fulfilled. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Abraham wasn't gonna tell him, so here comes God. In a dream by night, and God said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Not a dream you wanna have, by the way, uh, is that line from God. But you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife, not a sister. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, have I done this? And then God said to him in that dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. But listen to this. Yet it was I 
who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and he called his servants, and he told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Now, two things that we learn about God's activity in this dream. Number one, in this dream, God provides an explicit warning to Abimelech that is meant to lead towards his obedience in releasing Sarah back to Abraham. It's the point of this dream. And it's very similar to Jonah's words to the Ninevites. In fact, this whole chapter 20 parallels the story of Jonah, eerily close. Jonah goes into the Ninevites, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That is an edict of judgment that is coming, but laced within it implicitly is the provision of repentance that will hold off that judgment. It's the same thing here in this dream. Abimelech, you're a dead man if you end up touching this woman. You need to give her back to Abraham. There is a pronouncement of judgment and there is a, a provision for repentance. So Abimelech, he pleads his innocence in this. He's like, listen, guy, I didn't touch her. I have never touched this woman. And God affirms, says, I know you haven't, but lest Abimelech get all the credit here, God inserts, but let me just remind you or inform you the reason that you didn't is because I wasn't gonna let you touch her. Now, this is interesting here. Um, then there's a, there's a second thing that we're meant to know about this dream, not only is it this warning, but implicit within this and explicit even, God is actually showing in this dream that he is the one who sovereignly is ensuring that nothing is going to happen to Sarah in her womb. Again, verse six, it was I who prevented you. How? Look down at the very end at verse 18. Do you notice it says the Lord closed all the wombs? Now, I don't think we're meant to read this as some curse that God put upon the women of infertility. That's not what's happening here. Because notice just before verse 18, Abraham's going to pray at the end for the healing of this household. But notice what he prays for, not just the women. He prays for the healing of Abimelech as well. So most scholars believe that just like God did with Pharaoh, whatever the curse this is, whatever plague this is, was some sort of plague that ensured that Abimelech would not engage sexually with any woman, let alone Sarah. And now why is this so important? Again, it's where this story is placed. What is going to happen in the next chapter, chapter 21? the miracle child is going to be born. Sarah is going to give birth to Isaac. In fact, some may think that she may be pregnant right here, or certainly, as 21 indicates, she's going to conceive right around this time or right after. And so, let me ask this. What if Abimelech had actually engaged sexually with Sarah as one of his harem in this situation? What would anyone from this point forward, be able to say about the birth of Isaac. 
It's not a miracle. It's Abimelech's. How do we know it's not his? God's promise would be questioned from here on out. God is so committed to his promise that he is the one who actually prevented this from happening. Now, let me show you how emphatic this is because God not only wants to show Abraham and Abimelech a truth, he wants to show the original Israelites who are reading this just after the Exodus a truth as well. In Hebrew literature, it's um, not only under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is Moses penning this, but Hebrew, if you study Hebrew, it's so amazing. The words in Hebrew are all pictorial. They all have visuals. All the words in Hebrew um, have images that can be used in different contexts. And then it's also written in great genre here of, of poetry that's oftentimes included. And we've seen it in various places. And there's one here. You wouldn't catch it in your English translation, but in the Hebrew, verses three through seven is written as a chiasm. And what is a chiasm? The word chi or key in Greek is an X. That's a letter in the alphabet, in the Greek alphabet. And it's visual. Take the one side of it. It's like a greater than symbol. Starts up here and goes inward. You're gonna have several verses that there are phrases in the first and last verses that mirror themselves. And they get closer and closer together until there's one phrase in the very middle that is the whole point of the whole text. It's beautiful how Hebrew does this. And it's not that Moses is just going, hey, tricky, I'm gonna have a little fun poem with this. And it's a teaching tool. When you're learning oral history here and you're having to memorize all this, this is a way to remember what God was up to. I wanna just... Follow me here for a moment. Verse three and verse seven begin the chiasm, paralleling. Verse three, you have a phrase, behold, you are a dead man. In Hebrew, in verse seven, you have the parallel, and you shall live. Verse three gets a little closer in. Verse three, because of the woman you have taken. Verse seven, there's a phrase, return the man's wife. See how they're paralleling? Verse four, will you kill an innocent people? Verse six, it was I who kept you from sinning. I made you innocent. Verse five, the integrity of my heart, I have done this. Verse six, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And that leaves one phrase left in the middle. In verse six, it's the phrase, then God said to him or them in a dream. In Hebrew poetic form and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is wanting not only Abraham and Abimelech, but all the original readers to know God is the author and the agent in this story. Nobody else gets credit. Abimelech, Abraham, nobody's gonna lay credit to this, only God. Even though Abraham's sin of deceit and even though Abimelech's sin of obtaining a harem had threatened the promise of God, God's promise cannot be thwarted. And so he makes that known now. And the same is with us. When it comes to our redemption, all the evil atrocities going on in the world, all the sin that is alive in our own hearts, God's plans cannot be thwarted for you. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, for the elect, 
all things work together for the good of those who love him. It's part of his plan. He bookends that at the end of chapter nine. Nothing can separate you. Heights, depths, powers, principalities, nothing can separate what God has secured for you in him. I've got you. And even when you are your own enemy towards yourself, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And so in verse 9 and 10, after hearing this dream and receiving this revelation, Abimelech confronts Abraham. Got a little bit of conversation that needs to take place. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? (laughs) In other words, again, just like in the story of Jonah, there is this great irony and juxtaposition here. You have the unrighteous calling out and rebuking the righteous. Abraham, who has the commands of God's, wouldn't obey them. And Abimelech, who didn't have the commands of God's, once he gets it, he immediately obeys. You have the righteous who are living unrighteously and the unrighteous who are living righteously. This pagan Philistine king appears to have more fear of God than Abraham, God's own servant. There's an irony there. Well, as we've already seen, Abraham then lays out his excuses, those three excuses, blame shifting and playing the victim. But in verse 14 and following, we see Abimelech bless Abraham and Sarah. And you gotta go, wait a minute, why would you bless a dude who just totally deceived you? But remember, from Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. And so as we'll see, Abimelech is a smart man and he's gonna understand if this is God's chosen man for God's chosen purposes, then I'm gonna honor that. I'm gonna honor him, even if this guy's acting like an idiot. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants, female servants, gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And then he turned to Sarah and he said, behold, I have given, notice this, I have given your brother, I think there's a little punk down right there, I've given your brother, quote, quote, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Note the blessing to Sarah. It's one thing to bless Abraham. He blesses Sarah here. Thousand pieces of silver. Why? It's a sign, he says. A sign of what? It's a sign of Sarah's innocence. Again, why is that so important? Because what's coming in the next chapter? Isaac. If he had touched her, then there's always going to be an asterisk next to Isaac everywhere he goes. Is he really the miracle provision? Was this Abimelech's doing? So this is Abimelech's public profession for all the nations to take note. They were never together. He never laid a hand on her. And so once again, despite the threat towards God's promise, God's sovereign promises will prevail. Nothing can thwart it. 
And then what happens in verses 17 and 18, as you see there at the end, Abraham's going to turn around and he's going to pray a prayer of healing over Abimelech and his household, bringing healing on not only all the household, but healing on Abimelech as well. I want you to note verse seven, if you look back at verse seven, Abraham is actually called by God a prophet. Make a note, it's the first time in your Bible the word prophet appears as attached to one of God's people. Who's the first prophet of Israel? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Isaiah? Is it? No, it's actually Abraham. And what this means is he is no ordinary man. He is one who God has anointed for a purpose. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. You already saw cursing take place because of his deceit. Abraham's going to turn around now and make it right. And he is going to pray a prayer of blessing over Abimelech's household. And God hears that prayer and heals the whole household. Now, that's the text. That's everything laid out in front of us. Let me just say this on the back end of this text. Why is this text here? I think there are two main lessons that you and I are meant to take note of, as well as the original readers, that we need to be aware of. Number one, these are your takeaways. Number one, you and I are 100% prone to rerun episodes of sin in our life. We have to acknowledge that. If we think we're above sin, above temptation, man, we are misled. You and I within us are 100% prone for rerun episodes. Abraham had lied to his wife 25 years earlier. He saw the consequences of it. God rescued him out of it and he worshiped God in repentance. And now 25 years later, he's doing it again. Not only does he do it again, find out this was kind of his plan. He's probably been doing this a lot. And Israel, who's reading this for the first time, they needed to know no one is exempt from temptation and compromise. That even the father of our faith struggled with this. And you know what? It's gonna happen again. Little trailer, little warning, little heads up. This doesn't happen just twice. There's gonna be a third one. And you know where it's gonna happen? Chapter 26 with Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac is gonna meet another Abimelech. And he's going to lie and he's going to say, Rebecca is my sister. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, folks. A lot of generational stuff going on right here. But Israel needed to know that they were not above it either. They're reading this. They're on the, Jor- the banks of the Jordan. They're about to cross in to the promised land. And they're going to get not just one, not just two, but three stories in Genesis that are meant to serve as a reminder that we are to be on guard against our temptation towards compromise that is on a repeat cycle in our lives. Areas of trust where we refuse to hand over the reins to God, but instead choose to take control for ourselves. And the same is true with you and I. Man, I've got so many rerun episodes in my life. You think I'm crazy. It's like I've seen God's hand move over and over and over and I still go, God, you're not gonna come through this time. I gotta take things into my own hands. I've shared before, I remember being, I mean, a young college student 
and I went on my very first mission trip and had to support raise. Oh, support raising. I had to support raise $3,000. I didn't know any, I was a brand new Christian. I thought all everybody I knew was pagan. They're not going to invest in this. How am I going to raise this money? God's never going to do this. I'm going to be the only one on the trip that doesn't get to go. And God raised $4,000. And I went, Lord, you're amazing. I will never doubt you again. Until next year when I go on my second mission trip. And I got to raise $3,000. And you're never going to do this, God. You're incapable of doing this. Oh, really? These repeat episodes, these reruns, man, they plague us. And I've got certain areas in my life, and you do too, where on your weakest days, you just want to take that one back from God because he's not answering like you think he, he should answer in the timing and in the way that you think he should answer. And so we want to we take that control back. We want to coerce and manipulate the situation so that we can try to force God's will and God's blessing our way. And God doesn't want to have it that happen that way because you're going to get all the glory and he's not. And you're going to try to get in and threaten his purposes, but his purposes are unthreatened. By the way, we're not alone in this. If you get some time, go read Mark chapter 6 in the New Testament. Let me just give you an overview. Feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 out there, just men, and then all the women and children that are around it, so many. And they're hungry. There's nothing to eat. And the disciples want to send them away because there's not enough bread and Jesus, see, the disciples' theory was, I can only do what I can do with what I have. That's how they operated. And if I don't have it, then I can't do it. Jesus' theory was, no, you must do what you cannot do with what you don't have. And so the way that you do it is you got to bring it to me, and I'll bless it, and I'll multiply it. That was the lesson. Well, they didn't get it. They go out right after the feeding of the 5,000. They head out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes. Jesus comes walking to them. And Mark is careful to tell us that the disciples could not recognize that it was Jesus. Not because it was night and cloudy, but because they couldn't believe that he could do that. And Mark, at the end of that section, inserts a verse that says, and the reason they could not understand this is because they they had not gained any insight from the incident with the loaves. They didn't learn the lesson. And so now strike two on this. You know what happens two pages later in your Bible? Mark chapter eight, the feeding of the 4,000 should be a little easier. We got a thousand less. But what happens? The disciples go, where are we gonna get enough bread to feed all these people? Are you kidding me? Two chapters ago, go back. You were there. You saw him do it. And you questioned him again? And just in case you think that we're not supposed to get that, you know what happens immediately after the feeding of the 4,000? I mean, immediately. In Mark chapter 8, they get into a boat, they go on the Sea of Galilee, and the 12 disciples, that's all that's in there with Jesus, start arguing, where are we going to get enough bread for us to eat? Are you kidding me? There's 12 of you. He's done 5,000, 4,000. You think he's not going to feed 12 in a boat? And they're arguing over this and Jesus hears them and Jesus goes, why are you so difficult? Why is it so difficult for you to remember? Do you not know? And you know what he says? The same thing that Mark said at the end of the walking on the water, the reason they hadn't gained any insight on the loaves is because their heart was hardened. And Jesus goes, is your heart not hardened? 
You see, what leads to rerun episodes more than anything else is a hardened heart. You see God pour out his blessing, you trust him, and then the very next day, you start allowing callousness to grow over your heart so that you don't believe him again. And so, for some of us, so much time can pass with so much thickness of callousness, of hardening of heart, that the next time we need to see God come through, we just cannot even fathom that he can do it. The thing that we need the most from that callousness, and by the way, Jesus even says in Mark chapter 8, when you have a hardened heart, it leads to eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, and a mind that cannot remember. We have moments like that, and if we are not careful to rekindle our trust in him, and the way that we do that is by spending daily time in his word, reminding ourselves of his promises, because we're like sheep, we're going to forget. Constantly, that's why we read the scriptures, so we can commune with God and we can be reminded of his promises. And praying, where we learn how to trust and obey him and step out daily in faith regularly fixing our eyes, not on our faith, but on the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, then yes, barnacles of doubt and disbelief are going to attach themselves to our heart. And then we are going to fall into the temptation to want to seize control, manipulate, and compromise. That's why Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 79, says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. On any given day, you need to be aware you have a propensity because of the sin in your own heart to be deceitful. Nobody is above it. Me, anyone else. Yet, knowing that, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says that we are to keep our heart. That's the word keep is the word guard. We're to guard our heart with all vigilance. Why? Because from it flows a wellspring of life. How can you have out of one heart the ability to be deceived so wickedly and at the same time have fountains of living water come out of it? What's the key? Is your commitment to guarding your heart, to training your heart to believe, to training your heart to belong, to training your heart to run to where you know your treasures are found in Jesus Christ and not the things of this world. Now, for those of us that do have rerun episodes, there's good news. Not only are we 100% prone to our own rerun episodes, here's the second thing, final thing, the good news. God happens to be 100% committed to his own glory and your good. And that is good news today. His redemptive purposes in your life cannot fail. Israel needed to know that. That despite all the threats around them, and especially the threat that is within them, they cannot thwart the plans and the purposes of God for their redemption. They needed to know in reading this that they could cross over that Jordan River, they could go into the foreign land of the Canaanites and know that they don't have to manipulate their way to get the results that God has already promised. That even in the face of fear, they can know God's got them. Even if they stumble, God's plans are invincible. And the same is with us. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, even if we are faithless, he's faithful. 
Some of y'all need to hear that today. Even when you are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he can't deny his own name. He's not just committed to you. He's committed to his glory, his character, so you can trust him. And that is not a license to go compromise knowing that nothing you do is going to stop God. No, there's going to be collateral damage. But it is encouragement to know that we can hold on, even in our weakest days, that God's plans cannot be thwarted. I don't know where you're at your faith journey right now with the Lord. I imagine there are some of you in this room right now who are teetering with compromise. Maybe you're full on engaged in it right now. You have distanced yourself from the promises of God. You have allowed your heart to become hardened towards him. And you are full of trying to manipulate his will and his blessing into your life. And you need to know if you are a true child of God, he will not let you get away with it. Not for long. He loves you too much. God is more committed to his glory and your redemption than you are committed to your own sin. And that is good news for every one of us in this room. So rather than waiting to get exposed, come clean. There's mercy for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's grace for you. Come clean. Turn from the sin in your heart. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to those around you who you're hiding it from. And the immortal words of Hide and seek. Come out, come out wherever you are. His grace is sufficient for you. And especially this Easter season, look to the cross. Look to his resurrection for the life that you truly need. And for others of you who are seeking to be faithful right now, but you find yourself because of the evil events going on in our world, such as we've already prayed for, that seem to be all around us all the time. They have worn down your heart because of the deceitfulness of life and you just don't see God winning right now. You need to know that God will not be mocked and his ultimate purposes cannot be thwarted. I want to leave you with the words of David who said this in Psalm 37. Just listen to this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake your own wrath in that. Don't fret yourself because it only leads you to evil. For the evildoers, they're soon going to be cut off. There is a day coming. But those who wait for the Lord, they're gonna inherit the land. It's a promise. So in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at where they are right now, there's a day coming when they won't be there anymore. But the meek, they shall inherit the land and delight themselves in an abundance of peace. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need to be reminded of the truths in this chapter. We ourselves are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love over and over again, where we have the irony of the righteous living like somebody who would be unrighteous these rerun episodes that plague us. We have little faith. But God, we thank you that your mercy is greater. Greater than our own sin is your commitment to your redemptive purposes in our lives. So Lord, have us be held today in an evil and fallen world to know that your plans will not be thwarted no matter what may come. 
There is more going on here than we can see. So in the meantime, Lord, help us to turn away from compromise and rather turn to trust and trust you that you are going to work this out for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.